0: Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the book of John, chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. I would just remind you before we actually do our reading that this section of scripture immediately follows last week's passage where Jesus cleansed the temple, where Jesus drove out the money changers, where Jesus confronted those who were using the temple as a place to profit. And Jesus said, this temple, the court, of the Gentiles, especially, is meant to be a place of prayer, and you've made it a den of thieves. And so the conversation that we see this morning follows on the heels of those events, and I simply want to remind you of what happened before. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Hear now the Word of God. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truth on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, you know all hearts. You know us. Intimately. You know all things. Would you show us today if there is any falsehood within us, if there is any uncleanness in our hearts and would you give us liberty from it through the work of your son whom you have set before us today we ask it in christ's name amen you may be seated when we when we think about the temple of israel i think especially in our own sort of modern context we struggle to imagine Why a temple is even necessary, Uh, because one of the realities of the day and age that we live in is that ever since the Enlightenment, people have seen a shift in their sense of purpose. Uh, It used to be up through the Middle Ages, people were very interested in where they stood with God. One of the most important things to people and how they live their daily lives is, what does God think about me and what does he think of how I'm living? And ancient people, even before the time of Christ, they would meet you. And one of the most important things they could ask is, which God do you worship? That's the question they ask Jonah when he's on the ship and the storm is, is going on. And they ask him, who is your God? But there used to be this assumption in all societies, not just Jewish societies, not just Christian societies, that God or the gods, the supernatural basically stood above and behind everything that happened. And what that meant was that every event had theological significance to it. And everywhere you went... It mattered what you thought about God, what you believed about God, and most importantly, what God thought of you. In other words, God used to be a very important person in people's lives. And how we get to him, how we approach him, those questions mattered a great deal to people. And in fact, our lives were always intended to be centered around him and around the pursuit of him. But with the Enlightenment, it has at least become plausible to imagine a universe... Where there is no God at the center of it all. At least to modern people, it is plausible to say that. Even if it is nonsense, and even if you could show that it is nonsense at first glance to most modern people, that notion is not unimaginable. And because of that, there is a tendency on the part of people to to look at things and instead of knowing what they are or knowing what they're about, think that they can see through them. They, they look down on the supernatural, they say, I don't know about all of the universe, but I know this, there can't be a God behind these things. And so when they look at something, they think that they can see through it. They think they can see what's really going on with this thing. And then I would add to this, just sort of aside, that it's not really dominant anymore, if you, if you look at the interest of modern people in religion and spirituality, you actually see a diminishing interest in atheism. You see a diminishing interest in completely arguing against um, the things of God. Now, that doesn't mean that people love the Bible, and it doesn't mean that modern people love Christianity, and it doesn't mean that everybody just goes, is going bonkers for the religion that Jesus gave us in the Scriptures, Um, But it is interesting how open people are to spiritual things. And Tim Keller talks about this. He says there are two reasons for this. One is pragmatic and one is logical. He says the pragmatic reason why people are more interested in spirituality, more interested in spiritual things, is because if we can really understand everything and see through everything and understand the world we live in, Then through the means of science and medicine, we ought to be able to solve our social problems, our violence, our racism, our psychological problems, our social problems, our political problems. All of these things should be able to be solved. And so what has happened in the 21st century is we have leaned on medicine and science more than we ever have before. And yet we're more despondent and empty than we've ever been before. And we almost seem to be worse off than we were before. And a lot of people see that. And so what has happened is, this is the pragmatic reason why people are turning to spiritual things again. The Enlightenment worldview is not delivering on its promises. It promised us a utopia, and yet we still don't have the utopia. And the more we lean on those Enlightenment tools of science and medicine, the more we find ourselves coming up empty empty, and feeling bankrupt. And so people have discovered that that approach doesn't work. But there's also a logical reason why people are interested in spiritual things. And it's because people are more open to this because people have begun to see that this worldview of trying to see through everything doesn't really uh, terminate well. If you have skepticism upon skepticism and you keep arguing against things and tearing things down, eventually you're left with nothing. The skepticism has to stop at some point. You can't go away explaining things away constantly because eventually you're left with no explanation for the explanation. C.S. Lewis says it this way, and again, he's writing in the 40s and 50s but he still sees the problem starting to build. He says, the whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. It's good that the window is transparent because the garden beyond it is opaque. If you see through everything, then everything is transparent. But a whole transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as to not see. So Lewis's point, whether people realize it or not, is is at least well taken. People have become exhausted by the constant skepticism and cynicism. And at a certain point, people have realized it is necessary to life for us to believe in something. We can't be spiritual skeptics and spiritual vagabonds forever. Now, some people still try. um, But to tell you the truth, it is increasingly rare for me to meet or... Interact with people who claim to be atheists. More than ever, uh, atheists have diminished. Atheists have, atheism has become less popular, less common. I run into it less often. I'm much more, I'm much more run into students uh, and um, younger people especially who say, I'm interested in religion. I'm just not interested in, or, in an organized religion, which is a different problem altogether. Um, but interest in God in our day is on the rise, now, here's the other interesting thing. The only religious groups that are on the decline right now are the old mainline Protestant churches in the United States that rely on Enlightenment thinking, that, in, that are informed by the Enlightenment. This thing that was supposed to make these churches so advanced, so progressive, has actually made them completely unnecessary. Because you can always go and have a community group if you don't have Christ If your church doesn't take God seriously, doesn't take the Scripture seriously, doesn't take God's holiness seriously, doesn't take sin seriously, then there's absolutely no need for the church. And so those churches are shrinking and dying off. I think we can be glad about that. But all of that doesn't mean that our thinking hasn't been warped by the Enlightenment mindset. And so because of that, I think we as modern people who are inheritors of that way of thinking struggle to appreciate something like the temple in Israel. Why do they need this? It's just a building. That's, that's all it is. It's just a building. And yet our passage this morning is a reminder that not only is the temple significant in the life of Israel, not only is it significant in the life of God's people, but as impressive as it is. As important as it is, as central as it really was to the life of Israel, God has always intended something better for us than a building where God and heaven meet. And so this morning, Jesus presents us with three things. He he presents us with three realities. The temple is important. The temple is disposable. And then Jesus says third this morning, the temple is me. It's Jesus. Jesus. First, the temple is important. You, you actually see it in the New Testament that, that, that the sort of love and regard that the people have for the temple. In Luke 21, Jesus is with the disciples. They're walking through the temple complex and they're looking around and they're admiring the stonework. They're admiring the, the high arches and Just the impressiveness of the structure. The text says some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. So the temple wasn't just made to be a building. The temple was not just a functional structure. It was meant to be beautiful. That's why if you went into the uh, inside of the actual temple complex, the walls are adorned with images of palm branches and pomegranates. Um, Why? Because it's beautiful. Because it says something about creation. Inside of this temple is Eden. It's the garden again. So there's an intentionality, there's a beauty to the temple too. It was meant to, when you enter the temple complex, it was meant to give you a sense of the grandeur of the God that this place was dedicated to. You were to sense the holiness of God and the weightiness of the glory of God was supposed to impress itself upon you. Um, this place has been part of their lives for years, but think about this. They still marvel at this place. It's aesthetically beautiful. The, the Temple of Solomon the, and later the second temple were, the, were wonders of the ancient world. It was absolutely incredible. If you saw the temple, even by today's standards, you would have been in awe at the structure. And they understood, at least in their clearest moments, that this place, the temple, was meant to be the meeting place between God and man. For, for ancient Israelites, this was the place where heaven and earth met, where the natural and supernatural overlapped with each other. This is why we struggle to care about the temple today, because we don't imagine that it matters much whether the natural and the supernatural overlap. But they needed a place where they could go to be in the presence of the creator of all things. And that's why the temple was so significant. There was this recognition in the Hebrew religion that God is unlike us. That he is transcendent. That means he's above all of this. He's beyond the physical. That God is absolute. That he is the the creator. That he's the origin of all that we see. And so because of that, you can't just meet God. And not only that, but the Israelites were very aware of their own sinfulness. God told them over and over again in Scripture, of course, but they saw it in their own hearts. They saw it in their own lives. We cannot approach God while bearing our own sin. The sacrificial system existed as a yearly reminder for them so they could never forget their own sin. The soul that sins shall die, said the prophet Ezekiel. We're responsible for ourselves, for our own hearts, and we just can't bear it. And so they had priests, they had ceremonies, they had uh, sacrifices that took place to make God as approachable as possible. You know, the whole book of Leviticus is built around God telling the priests how people are supposed to live as sinners in the presence of a holy God who punishes sin. And so because of this incredible sense of the unholiness, the need, uh, their own unholiness, their own need for atonement, for sin, the temple wasn't just important, it was necessary. The temple was the center of the religious life of Israel. It's where they went for festivals. It's where they went for sacrifices. It's where they went primarily for public worship. All that is to say, the temple ...is very important. And Jesus knows it. But second, the temple may be important... ...but it is also disposable. Um, It's a building that always had an expiration date. Back in 1986, the Chernobyl nuclear disaster sent... ...radioactive particles all over the, the world... ...and especially into the nation of Ukraine... ...parts of Russia and all over Western Europe... In the, in, the accident, in the years after the accident, they, they very quickly put together sort of a shaky enclosure to go over the building, the reactor. Um, and they had a contest back in the 1990s, which it doesn't sound very fun to have a contest relating to nuclear disasters, but they had a contest. They wanted to see who could come up with the best design for a permanent enclosure – for the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. And there were all kinds of designs that came from all over the world. Finally, in 2010, they started to build the winning design. It took eight years and billions of dollars, but they eventually created what was called a sarcophagus. And the sarcophagus was meant to be this enclosure that goes over the Chernobyl nuclear power plant, the sides close down, and it encloses it so that the particles wouldn't go out everywhere and And kill people, basically. Supposedly, the the particles that are in there are are active for 5,000 years or more. And so you need to have something to contain all of this radiation. And so it was the largest structure ever moved on land. They built it several yards away, several football field lengths away. And then they slid it into place over the power plant. And it is the largest building that's ever been moved on land. And now as large as the structure is, as expensive as it was, as much manpower that went into building this thing. Interestingly, I watched a documentary where they said that the building is only meant to stand for 100 years. It's not meant to be able to last more than 100 years. After 100 years, the beams are going to start to rust. They're going to uh, expire. And eventually this enclosure is going to have to have an enclosure of its own. It's a building that serves an important purpose. But it is not as though it's a permanent solution. Eventually, the sarcophagus is going to wear out. Well, as impressive as it is, and as difficult as it was to build, the temple wasn't a permanent structure either. And Jesus says as much. In Matthew 24, Jesus, the people are marveling at the temple. They're marveling at how beautiful and grand it is. And then Jesus totally bursts their bubble. He's a Debbie Downer here. He says, truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So in other words, Jesus looks at the temple and he wants them to know what he knows. This place, as beautiful and grand as it is, is not permanent. It is disposable. And he knew this, that the temple had been destroyed before and it was going to be destroyed again. Think of the history of the temple. In the first 500 years of Israel's life after they left Egypt, the Ark of the Covenant went with Israel, and it represented the presence of God. Um, And they didn't have a temple because the Israelites were traveling. They didn't have a home. And they certainly didn't have a permanent home for the Ark. And so they traveled with the tabernacle. And when they traveled, they took this incredibly complex, uh, very heavy, elaborate tent That an army of Levites, their whole lives were dedicated to maintaining, taking care of, and hauling around this tent wherever they went. And so wherever they would go, they would set up the tent. And this was the way that it was until the time of Solomon. So for 500 years, there's no temple. And yet Israel is very much still God's people. Then David becomes the king. He he hits a point in his rule where he's prosperous. He's doing well. He has security. Rest from his enemies all around. And he tells God that he wants to build the temple to house the Ark of the Covenant. And yet God tells him around the year 1000 or so, he tells David, you cannot build the temple because of the blood that's on your hands. David was a man of war. But David's son, Solomon, did build the temple. And so the temple was built around the year 950 B.C. And the temple stood for almost 500 years. However, it was destroyed by Babylon in 586 B.C. when they wiped out Israel. It was laid flat as a pancake. The walls of the city, flat as a pancake. After the decree of Cyrus, the people of Israel returned to the land. What do they do? They set about rebuilding the temple. the, The temple gets rebuilt around 516 B.C. with money from the Persian Empire. This is how good God is. The Persians pay for Israel to have their temple back again. And this second temple lasted for about 500 years. But even then, 30 years or 40 years after Jesus is speaking, what happens? The temple gets torn down and destroyed again. And it has never been rebuilt ever since then. The Wailing Wall in Jerusalem is all that is left of the old temple complex today. And so what happens? Jewish people still go to the Wailing Wall. They write prayers down. They slip prayers into the cracks of the wall. They go to this place to remember, to lament, to mourn what they've lost, and to enjoy the last remains of the temple. And so think about the whole life cycle of the temple from conception to birth to destruction and all over again. The resident message of the temple has been this. This building doesn't last. Someone always destroys it. Or in the case of the tabernacle, they had it before the temple was built and God was still their God and they were still his people. So we we, we keep needing to prop this place up And we need to keep this temple going. And so for almost a thousand years of Israel's history, the message that has continuously been delivered and hammered into Israel's head by God through their circumstances is you need a temple that will never, ever, ever go away. You need a better temple. You need a temple that can't fail you. You need a temple that can't be destroyed or taken or shaken. And that brings us to God's answer to that entire dilemma of the disposable temple. And that's point number three. Jesus says, the temple is me. This is where we get to the actual substance. This has been an odd sermon. I haven't talked much about the actual text. Now, here we are. Look at the actual, what Jesus says in our passage. Remember what just happened. Jesus went into the temple He chased out the money changers. He made a whip. He drove them out. He threw their money onto the ground. It was chaos. And so the Jews ask him this question. Uh, We don't know if it was on the spot. We don't know if it was later uh, or, or when it happened exactly. But they ask him this question. What sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, they're challenging him. They're saying, you don't have a right to do this. This isn't your temple. It's not your right or privilege to come into the temple and treat it like this or to treat us like this. And the response Jesus gives to them, they ask for a sign. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And then the Jews hear it and they say, this this has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? And then John adds this comment. He says he was speaking about the temple of his body. There are a couple of things going on here. On the one hand, Jesus says, my resurrection will be your sign. So he's answering their question. Are you going to give us a sign that you have the right to do these things? And Jesus says, I'm going to give you a sign. I'm going to be put to death. I'm going to rise in the third day. You will not get a better sign than that. So even this early on in his ministry, uh, here we are, we're only in chapter 2. He already has his gaze set on the cross. He already has his gaze on the horizon. He knows his resurrection is in the future. He knows what he has to do. He knows that he's going to be raised up. But as this book progresses, progresses, keep this in mind when it comes to Jesus. Jesus is a man who already has his eyes on the end. He ministers the way Richard Baxter says that preachers are supposed to preach. He says, as, <clears throat> he says, as to never preach again, a dying man to dying men. And that's Jesus. Jesus lives with his death, even in front of him, as he's talking to them right here, he's ready to die. So on the one hand, he's predicting his death, and he's predicting his resurrection. But then on the other hand... He's saying something else that really relates to the question we started with. What is up with a temple? Why is the temple so important? And what is Jesus telling us about himself? Jesus teaches his people that he is now the place where man and heaven meet. As impressive as it is that the physical temple in Jerusalem itself didn't really do what Israel needed, It represented the presence of God, but it didn't really house him. It never housed him. Um, What did Stephen say in his sermon that got him killed in Acts chapter 7? He said, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. What does Colossians 2.9 say? For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily you see the difference Stephen says God doesn't dwell in houses made by hands Colossians says God dwells fully in Christ God doesn't dwell in the temple the better temple has come and it's Jesus himself and that's part of what he's saying he's the temple that can't be destroyed he's the temple that'll last forever He's the one that will never die. He's the temple with no expiration date. Now, why is that precious news to Christians? I'll give you three reasons. First, because it means that our relationship with God will never be vulnerable again. Our relationship with God will never be vulnerable again. Because think of this. Before, yes, the temple was impressive. It stood for hundreds of years at a time. But each time foreign powers loomed on the horizon, Uh, whenever the world events started to look scary, there was a chance that the meeting place between God and man would be destroyed. Every time Jerusalem was surrounded, the meeting place between God and man was threatened. And when Jesus came, that completely changed. Because now we no longer have to fear losing our standing with God. We never have to lose Fear losing our meeting place with God. The thing that gives us security with God. Because he's risen. And now we are absolutely secure in him. And that temple can never be taken away. It doesn't matter what's happening. Global recessions. Tornadoes. Typhoons. Earthquakes. Wars. Famines. Nuclear threats. Chemical threats. Plagues. You name it. None of these things can ever ever separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Second, as our temple Jesus Jesus as our temple means that our relationship with God is not geographically restricted. Once Jesus died and rose again, do you remember what happened at Pentecost? People from all over the world received the spirit They are speaking different languages, different tongues. They go back to their own places. They don't stay near the temple. They don't stay in Jerusalem anymore. They go and they gather with their friends, their family. They don't depend on the temple more. They moved away from it completely. By 70 AD, when the temple is flattened, what happens? The the souls of the Jews were crushed. Meanwhile, Christians flourished. The gospel leaves that place, goes to somewhere else. Why? Because Jesus is our temple now. Our security is found in a risen and resurrected Christ now. One third thing that this means, having Jesus as our temple, means that our worship is focused on Jesus and not on a physical place. Um, Even to this day, Jews, when they pray, they face toward Jerusalem. Muslims, Muslims face Mecca. In fact, if you look, we were talking about architecture this week in in our Wednesday night lesson. And we were talking about how worldview influences our architecture. If you ever go to a mosque, then you will notice mosques are not constructed facing directly north and south or east and west. Rather, they have sort of a southeasterly facing direction. And inside the building, there is a little niche in the wall Which is where people focus their prayers. They actually, when they bow, they bow facing that specific wall. And it's because they have intentionally constructed the building so that they are always bowing toward the Kaaba in Mecca. A little niche is called a mirab. But Christians, where do we face when we pray? We face toward Christ. Christ. We don't face toward a physical location. We don't pray toward Jerusalem. We don't pray towards some temple or some building. Instead, we pray facing toward Christ, not physically, but spiritually. And that's why we pray in Jesus' name. Because he is the focus of our prayers. He is the deliverer of our prayers now. We don't need a place. We don't need a temple. We need Jesus. And even more than that, knowing that Jesus is our temple, that Jesus is the place where we meet God, it keeps us from being too precious about our own building. I remember seeing a video of a tornado last year, I think it was in Alabama, and a church had been destroyed, and they were interviewing the pastor afterward, and they said, how do you feel about the fact that you've lost your building? And he said, it's just a building, we can meet and worship anywhere, we can rebuild that's the attitude of somebody who knows that God doesn't dwell in houses made by human hands. We can have the same attitude as well. What is Jesus, what is Jesus doing here from the, the Jewish perspective? He's turning their gaze away from the building. He's turning their gaze toward himself. That's what he means to do for us too. He wants us to set our eyes on himself. There are two ways we can approach God according to Jesus. The first way we can approach is in a way that we bring the sacrifice. That's what the temple represents. The temple represents a model where we bring what we have and God accepts us as righteous. Um, Many people, if you ask them, why would God accept you into his kingdom? Why would God let you into heaven? If you ask the man on the street... They would point to their life. They would point to their good deeds. They would point to their own righteousness. They would point to how hard they work or they would point to how they take care of their family or any other number of things that they consider virtuous in their own life and they would point to what they have done. But Jesus here is doing something else. He is really saying that is a dead, dying way to know the Father. There is a better way That won't fail you and won't ruin you. His answer is, come to me. Come to me, trust in me, look to me. I'll provide for you. This is the way of grace. The way that Jesus says, I'll bring the sacrifice. I am the sacrifice, Jesus says. Just believe in me. Look what happens in the passage. It says the people start to respond. They start to do just what he's calling them to do. John tells, them, tells us many believed in his name. When they saw the signs that he was doing. And today Jesus is calling all of us. To stop approaching God. Or approaching the church. As a market where you do. And give. And bargain. And work. Until you feel like we can buy our way. Into his favor. The grace of based approach that Jesus offers us says this, I'll bring the sacrifice. I'll be the sacrifice. All you have to do is believe in me. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help this passage to sink down into our bones this morning. Show us if there's some way that we're looking at our works that we're finding security in our service, our life as the thing that gives us security. Center our lives around your son. Reorient us so that we have a personal relationship with you through your son. Help us never see you as a being to be bought or bribed, but not loved. And forgive us for the ways that we fall short of what your word tells us. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, Amen.